This is a Vault Studios production. A 35-year-old woman sits in a red pickup truck outside a day's inn in Corpus Christi, Texas. It's nighttime, but the truck is lit up by bright lights. Those lights also glint off the helmets of SWAT officers crouching nearby, behind bushes and trees and buildings, ready, waiting. Inside the nearby motel, guests have been told to stay inside their rooms until the standoff ends. And back inside the truck, the woman holds a phone to her ear and a gun to her head. to kill myself. No, you don't have to I do have that. to learn. You don't have to do that. I have to You don't learn. have to do that, Yolanda. The voice on the other end of the line is Larry Young. He's been brought in to negotiate with Yolanda Saldivar, the woman inside the truck. He's been at it for hours, sitting inside a nearby office. I know you're, I know you're very tired. <laughs> I'm tired, too. And, uh, <laughs> I know, I know that you're tired. <laughs> You know, they always say that there's another side to the story. <laughs> My story will never be heard. It will never be heard. Your side will be heard. For hours and hours, the veteran officer continues in a calm voice, pleading and coaxing, searching for that one line, that one promise that will convince Saldivar to put the gun down and surrender. I know you're sitting there in the truck and you feel like well, everybody's out here, and and I'm embarrassed, and and I'm hurting so bad. But believe me, there are a lot of people here that are for you. But inside the truck, the woman with brown curly hair and a gun in her hand is distraught, despondent, hopeless. I don't want to live anymore, Larry. I don't want to live anymore. You know why? Because I don't have any dignity. I don't have any dignity at all. You have dignity. You have dignity with me. But his words aren't working. For Yolanda Saldivar, things have already gone too far. There's no going back. She's shattered by the friend she's lost, by what she's done. I have lost the only friend I ever had in my entire life. Yolanda. You were talking about the only friend you ever had. Who was that? <laughs> but she can't say her friend's name. She can't say who it is. She's lost. Now, let me tell you something, Yolanda. I've been on the phone for a while talking to you, and I'd like to stay on the phone talking to you. <laughs> and I, and I, but I'd much rather go out there and talk to you in person. I really would. You know. But my supervisor has just got through telling me that, that um, he's going to take me off of the phone. <laughs> Yolanda's tortured cries continue, hour after hour, and into the night. She can't bring herself to give up, but neither can she pull the trigger. It would be the second time that day if she did pull it, and the first time is what started all this, what led to the pickup truck and the SWAT officers. The first time she pulled the trigger was that morning, 12 minutes before noon. It was when she killed her best friend, her idol. It was the day she killed Selena. There are a lot of people out there wondering right now. They're all thinking, I mean, these things just don't happen. There must be something more to this. I think there are think people out there going, what's really going on? <laughs> that day was March 31st, 1995. But how did we get there? The road to that day was treacherous and secretive. Maybe you know the story of Selena, the Tejano singer. Jennifer Lopez played her in the aptly named movie about her life. But I'm about to tell you the story of two women. 
a superstar just beginning to break out into a new world of music stardom, and an obsessed superfan who never let that happen. How did their lives collide, changing everything and everyone around them? I'm Rudy Trevino. I've been an anchor at KIIII-TV, ABC in Corpus Christi for more than 20 years. I watched Selena rise to fame. She was on the brink of international stardom with her English crossover album. A lot of memories, a lot of memories here, especially for the folks who, who call Melina home. Um, generations have since come and gone for the kids that walk in front of their homes here headed to school or to a bus stop or even to the corner grocery store there. But they all have told the same story, that they all live in the neighborhood where Selena once lived. I took Grace White, my colleague from KHOU-TV in Houston, around town, introducing her to just how significant Selena is in Corpus Christi. Hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. You own the store. You own the store when Selena would come here, yes. right? And do you remember when Selena used to come here? Yes. If you could, what can you tell me about Selena that you remember? I remember Selena uh, passing by uh, from school. And she would stop by and, and get uh, sodas, Fritos, you know, stuff like that, snacks. Yes, she was a happy child, yeah. Really? Yeah, I remember her. But my memories of her family go back further. Back when I was a kid and I saw her dad, Abraham, perform with his band, Los Dinos, in 1965. It was my first real brush with fame, you could say. I watched his band perform, and then, after the show, Abraham walked past me and tapped me on the head. I'll never forget how excited I was. So, for Selena, it seemed only fitting that music was part of her life from the very beginning. Selena loved working with her family, her band, Selena y los Dinos was comprised of her sister Suzette and her brother A.B. You know, I'm a firm believer that Hispanic families are real tight. They seem to stick together, believe in real family uh, unity. And you can see by our family, we work together really well. And Selena was excited about her upcoming English album release. We're going to start the English album. I was supposed to start it this week, Monday, to fly to Nashville and start recording with Keith Thomas, but I got sick. So we're going to start on that. It should be out uh, June or July. And along with the, the Spanish album, the Hano album will be out at the same time. And playing inside the Houston Astrodome meant she was on the brink of superstardom. It was February 1995. Selena rode out on a white horse-drawn carriage, sitting on a deep red velvet seat. Her long jet black hair floated behind her in the breeze. She waved proudly with one hand to her more than 60,000 adoring fans, her other hand clutching her microphone, ready to perform. She took the stage, wearing a sparkly, plum-colored jumpsuit with bell-bottoms, crisscrossing across her chest. With bright red manicured nails, she lifted the microphone to her dark red lips. How you doing, Houston, Texas? I think playing at the Astrodome was kind of like a dream come true for all of us because, I mean, this place is, you know, like Garth Brooks and George Strait and, you know, Michael Jackson's even played there. And I remember when Michael Jackson had played there, you know, I thought to myself, wow, that'd be really neat if one day, you know, we, it ever gets to the point, you know, where we can play there. Salina! But before the rodeo and the Astrodome, before the English crossover, Selena 
was just a little girl growing up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Selena's father, Abraham Quintanilla. She was a natural. No lessons, no nothing. I mean, she was right on pitch. Uh, the timing was right and everything. I mean, she had it. And I knew that she was going to do something. She was a pro. She had some, some miles on the road behind her. <laughs> Selena was born on April 16, 1971. She was the youngest of three and grew up in Lake Jackson, Texas, until she was nine and her family moved to Corpus Christi. But it wouldn't be long before music was running through her veins and she was a natural talent. Her siblings' band was Los Dinos, Next Generation, Selena y Los Dinos. In fact, they performed on the same local show I host, Domingo Live. I first met Selena after one of her concerts. I can say firsthand, she's the same on stage as off. So kind, down-to-earth, funny, beautiful, bubbly. It was like meeting one of our own. Selena's brother, A.B. The second one to start with was Selena. And that's when she started picking up a songbook and saying, I want in on the action too. And so dad started putting her to sing. So then it was myself, Selena, and my dad. We'd perform for little parties. Selena's sister, Suzette. I was the only other child that wasn't doing anything. And he said, hey, guess what? You're going to play the drums. We used to play ballads like um, I'm in the Mood for Love, Feelings, you know, songs like that. And uh, then we got introduced to um, the Honda music. Fans fell in love with her, felt like they knew her. She instantly became a singer for the people. In fact, they gave her the nickname La Flor. It stands for her purity, her true love of the craft of music. And La Rosa Blanca, the white rose, symbolizes the innocence of Selena. Talking to Selena was like I had known her forever. It didn't matter how tired she was. She would wait, you know, for their last fan, you know, to give them an autograph. To her fans, Selena was more than a singer. She was an icon and the epitome of a strong Latina woman. My mother was a huge Selena fan. Nia Town grew up revering Selena right alongside her sister, like so many little girls in Corpus Christi in the 1990s. I'm the news director at KIII 3 News in Corpus Christi, Texas. We have a really extensive history with Selena, just growing up listening to her, reading everything we could about her. My mom always saying, okay, now let's dance like Selena. Let's, you know, do the the iconic, let's do the washing machine. So we, we listened to a lot of her music and we were just, it was just one of those things where you see someone who looks like you, who talks like you, who, um, and is out there, you know, doing big, great things in a very uh, positive light. You know, you don't realize it's inspirational when you're a kid, but it's showing you, hey, you can do it all. Even today, now living in Selena's hometown, when Nia hears Selena come on the radio, everything stops and, well, you just dance. You know, you're at the you're at the carne asada and you're, you know, you're having a good time. Everyone's there and her song comes on and you just have to blast it. Everyone stops what they're doing. They blast the music and they start dancing and having a good time. And they start seeing who does the best, you know, uh, dance move, who looks the most like her, who can do the perfect red lipstick. Sarah Lucetta was working at a Univision TV station in the early 90s when she met the young singer. 
She was probably one of the first or one of the few people, artists, that were crossing over into English music as successfully as she was. And then she had a clothing line, too, on top of all that. So she was doing it all. You know, she was living living a dream, living the American dream. And I think for a lot of people, you know, in the Hispanic community, they looked at that and they really looked up at what she was doing and how she was doing it and how she was becoming this amazing celebrity, unforgettable celebrity, almost an icon and a legend, even, even when she was still alive. Selena inspired, became an icon, and her fan base only grew with her upcoming crossover album. Beyond her fans, she influenced other singers and artists, too. 107FM, San Antonio's number one, Tejano Hit Station. KXTN program director Bob Prado saw her rise to fame and how fans embraced her and her music. She was very well accepted into the English market. Uh, Billboard uh, sales uh, of her CD just skyrocketed. So to say where she was, I think she would be up there among the superstars as Madonna and, and Elvis, you know, because people knew her on a one-name basis and what they say in the industry, when you're known as a one-name basis, you've made it. I saw that firsthand with my own nationally syndicated radio show, Tejano Gold Countdown. Tejano music at that time was a male-dominated world. But when Selena walked in, she shook up everything about the scene. Tejano music is unique, a blend of different genres and many different cultures from Ireland, Germany, Hungary, Mexico. Lots of guitar, brass, percussion, accordions, and mariachis. And somehow, it all melded, and the Tejano industry was born in South Texas. And Selena, well, she changed the climate for female Tejano singers. Ron Trevino, a reporter with KHOU in Houston, stepped into Q Productions, based in Corpus Christi. He talked with Selena from inside the studio. So you must be pretty excited about everything that's being done here, huh? Yeah, right here they're going to make a recording studio so we don't have to go out of town to record. It's taking shape. This is just one big paint and body shop and they filled up these huge drawers. Play it, Ricky. What key was this in? A lot of people take for granted that, oh yeah, it's... It's Selena's brother. Automatically, he's going to get the songs, you know. And that that's not the way that the record companies involved. And when you have record companies, you have to gain their trust as a producer and songwriter that you are able to take care of one of their top-selling artists. And that's that's a lot of pressure, but it get, it has a lot of great rewards also. Mm-hmm. A.B. will also co-produce an English album for Selena. Up to now, all of her recordings have been in Spanish. Selena's sister and drummer, Suzette. We stand with SPK Records, and it's an all-English. It's a, a branch of EMI, and it's uh, Wilson Phillips is on this label, uh, John Sagada, you know, artists such as that. And um, we're looking forward to the crossover. We're not going to leave Tejano Music, you know, don't panic. They thank their father, Abraham, for their success. He was the leader of the original Dino's band in the 50s. In the early 80s, he poured all his money into a restaurant in Lake Jackson, a six-year-old Selena would sing for customers. But a bad economy caused the restaurant to fail, and the family had nothing. Nothing except raw talent. Here's home video of Selena at 10 years of age. We didn't have anything really to fall back on, so Dad was determined in his mind to make us professionals at anything, any cost. It wasn't long before she was getting recognized for her talents. The Grammy goes to... Live, Selena. I'd like to thank uh, my band, Los Dinos, my father, Abraham, my brother, who's a producer of my music. I love you. Thank you. 
She was just 15 when she won her first music award. But it wouldn't be the last one, not by a long shot. Selena was nominated for 86 awards and won 67 of those, including Female Vocalist of the Year, Entertainer of the Year, and 36 Billboard Latin Music Awards and a Grammy. But over the years, growing up in the spotlight, Selena fell in love with more than music when her father hired guitarist Chris Bettis to the band. Bettis was a rock and roll musician. At first, Abraham wasn't exactly sold on the idea of him joining their Tejano group. But other band members convinced him that his talent would translate. Even though her dad didn't want any romance between band members, Selena fell hard for the new guitarist. Abraham did not approve. But the young couple eloped, and eventually Abraham came around. Grace White, an investigative reporter with KHOU in Houston, was in Corpus Christi working on interviews for this podcast when she ran into Julie Ramirez visiting Selena's memorial amid hundreds of white roses, Las Rosas Blancas. I feel like she can hear me. I come and talk to her for a little bit and visit with her. Knowing that she's there, she was very important to me. She would just go out of her way for me all the time. Julie Ramirez was a close friend of Selena and a part of her family's inner circle. She helped create some of her most memorable concert outfits, like that iconic plump jumpsuit she wore inside the Houston Astrodome in 1995 and the white rhinestone denim jacket from the Houston Rodeo. And tell us about that jean jacket behind you. The jean jacket behind me, well, she sent it to me because she wanted to make uh, more like a biker jacket. And so she sent me that as um, showing me that she wanted it that short, like a pattern type. And then she put on there the different colors that she wanted it in. And uh, she would always send me samples like that and whenever she wanted something made special. And again, that outfit that's also behind you that she wore at the Houston Rodeo, that was her design, but that you That was her design, it. yes. She designed that. And mm-hmm. then it was your job to create it. Yes. To make her dream come to life. Mm-hmm. She thought of us like a family, that we were like her family, Selena's family. She um, had a lot of trust in everybody, and she cared about everybody. I think that, I think that's what got her in trouble. She just had too much trust in people. That undying trust in people troubled her dad, Abraham. And her dad is the one that would worry about her all the time and tell her, and she would say, my dad just worries too much because nobody's going to hurt me. And she never thought anybody would hurt her. But fame is complicated. It comes at a price. It's not easy. And it's hard to know who you can really trust. Just as Selena was on the cusp of her English crossover stardom, Yolanda Saldivar entered the picture. In an effort to ease the burden of Selena's growing fame, Yolanda was hired to manage Selena's booming fan club, including its finances. Yolanda Saldivar, a former nurse, was soon handed the role of fan club president. She was in charge of getting Selena's adoring fans merchandise, giving her control of the club's finances and the budding fashion boutique. Univision's Sarah Lucero remembers meeting Yolanda Saldivar when she was asked by Selena to be the MC at one of her shows. So she told me she wanted me to go down to her boutique on Broadway and meet her there, and she would have one of her assistants help me out to get me in the right, the right outfit for the concert. 
Um, so I went down to the boutique soon after that, and she was there, and she, you know, got me together with Yolanda Saldivar, and that's where I met Yolanda. You know, she was taking care of all the details that Selena wanted her to take care of. So Yolanda was very attentive with me and, you know, assured me that whatever I needed, you know, just let her know that she was there to, to make sure that, that I felt good and that the, the show went well and that the clothes were perfect because that was Selena's goal was that her clothes looked perfect, especially for the big concert, the big launch. Like many of her fans, Yolanda Saldivar idolized Selena and wanted to be a part of every aspect of her life. Selena's seamstress, Julie Ramirez, remembers when Yolanda entered the picture, and Julie tells Grace White that she immediately got a bad feeling about her. And when did Yolanda come into the picture? Oh, that was early. Um, I would say the early 90s or late 80s, because she was with her for a while. Did Uh, you ever get a bad feeling from her? Yes, because I knew she didn't like me. She didn't like me being around Selena. Um, She was like kind of possessive with her. And um, she always wanted Selena's attention. She wanted to be in the limelight all the time, you know, and sometimes I think she thought she was the star, not Selena. But she always wanted to be in the limelight and be around her and be in the front of the cameras. Was she introduced to you as the fan club president? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, little by little, she just worked her way in. And then she started working with Selena as far as doing her paperwork, ordering her fabrics and everything that she needed. She started taking over everything. And I think after a while, she was even doing her books, her bank accounts, everything. So she had access to everything. And that's what uh, messed things up, I think. She just had too much trust in her. I mean, she catered to Selena all the time, but then who wouldn't, you know? And uh, she was always on top of things and doing things for her, and she loved traveling with her whenever she could. During the boutique opening, Julie remembers how Yolanda tried to control Selena and keep her from others. Yolanda kept me from her a lot. You know, she would always try to push me away. When we, when we did the openings of the boutique, I remember that day I came to Corpus. She called me to come over here. And for the opening, um, before that, every, we're all getting stuff ready. And she said, Julie, the media's going to be here in a minute, so I want you to come and stand by me when they come. I said, okay. So I kept doing things and fixing things. And then um, after a while, she hollered. She said, the media's here, so y'all come on. And uh, I started to get ready to go over there, and Yolanda said, oh, we didn't put the fix the table with the cookies and the punch. Would you please do that? I said, sure, I'll do it. So I went and did it, not worrying about the cameras and stuff. And, boy, she went up there, and she just got in the front right away. <laughs> and all the time, she was just kind of pushing me away. So here, when we opened up the boutique here in Corpus, then we went to San Antonio. The following day, we were going to ride back to San Antonio like in a caravan. Everybody was going to follow each other. Selena wanted to ride with Julie, but Yolanda wasn't having it. So when we got there and she got in the car, had her stuff, and then Yolanda said, Selena, come here. So she called her. She says, she, they were talking and stuff, and then Selena came back and talked to me and told me, I'm going to have to ride with Yolanda because she's got some things to talk to me about. I said, okay, that's fine. She said, but I wanted to ride with you. I said, that's fine. You go ahead and take care of business. So she left with Yolanda. When we got to San Antonio, first thing she gets out and she comes to my car and she tells me, 
I don't know why she wanted me to ride with her. She didn't talk to me about anything. I said, oh, that's okay. But Julie says trying to keep Selena all to herself wasn't the worst of it. Money issues started rearing its ugly head, and complaints to the fan club were trickling in. They paid their dues, and then in turn, Yolanda would send them a packet of a shirt and some pictures or whatever. And they started complaining because they would send their monies in and never got anything. So that's how he started finding out that uh, she was not turning, or rather sending out the packets and keeping the money. But um, And you had problem, problems getting paid too. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And she would always put me off all the time, put me off, and she would put the blame on Selena. But when we first started and Selena was paying me direct, I never had any problems. And it's just when she started was when I started, you know, having to wait longer. And in the very end, I didn't get paid for what was owed to me. When you would ask Yolanda about it, what would she say? That Selena had no the invoices and she needed to okay the invoices. And she was hard. It was hard to do because she wasn't always in town or she was on the go all the time and busy. And so she just kept putting me off. But what did Selena say? I never approached Selena about my monies because I knew that Yolanda was the one that was in charge of paying things out. So even if I was with Selena talking to her or whatever, I never mentioned it to her. I would always, but when I needed my money, I would kept calling Yolanda and calling her and calling her, stayed on her, and she would make all the excuses, but I never did go and tell Selena anything. But before the fans, before the bright, young Tejano star came into her life, Yolanda's life was nothing like Selena's growing up. Maybe no one knows Yolanda better than her family. Sarah Lucero sat down with her sister, Maria Elida Saldivar, many years later, giving insight into Yolanda's life and what Selena meant to her and her sister. So when I went to interview the sister on the south side of San Antonio, they lived in a very uh, modest area. I mean, it was a very almost an undeveloped part of the county. And they lived in a trailer home um, in, a, in a park where there were other mobile homes. And they welcomed me in. They were very sweet, very, you know, very welcoming. They offered me coffee, um, you know, sit down, let's talk. We sat at the kitchen table. In reality, Yolanda and Selena did have a, a friendship as a, a good friends. They say Selena used to go into their house, into that little small, very humble, very modest home on the south side and, and just want to be kind of a normal person. And she'd go in there and she just wanted to, you know, have coffee and talk and not, not be Selena the superstar, just be Selena you know, from Corpus Christi. She would come over and she knew that that's one thing she had always asked, please, when I come over here, I don't want no camera, no nothing. I just want to come down and sit and have a nice talk, a cup of coffee. And when we used to make her feel like she was one of my, another baby sister that we had. And they seemed to be also very, um, they were almost a little like, um, they were starstruck by it. They were starstruck and didn't really know how to deal with it or handle it, but they just went with it. You know, they just were themselves. Yolanda even created her own nickname for Selena. Selena to Selena Yolanda with her little buffy or anything, as you can see on this card. Mm-hmm. 
Elida flips through a large green binder filled with everything from Yolanda's life with Selena, like those notes and cards. Or she would bring her little gifts like those dishes. Yeah. And that friendship went beyond sweet notes and dishes. Yolanda was Selena's fan club president. But according to some, as Selena's fan base grew, so did Yolanda's obsession. When money started going missing to the tune of almost $30,000, fans started getting restless. And Abraham had had enough. Money was missing from the boutique, too. People weren't getting paid. Words like insufficient funds were popping up left and right. A lot of accusations were thrown in Yolanda's direction, but her sister was adamant that it wasn't Yolanda who was stealing from Selena. And when Yolanda started showing Selena what reality, where her money was going to, that's when Mr. Quintanilla got so upset because he was, he was, she was trying to make Selena understand that what she was investing her money her money was not being invested right. It was invested wrong. What Yolanda was saying, your money from your music, you're just wasting it. You're not, it's not enough for what you're making. Elida has held on to a pile of those photocopied checks to back up what she's saying. What Yolanda has said, she wasn't a thief. I mean, here are the checks. So did this, this Belinda, who is the person who wrote these, most of the checks? Yeah, they all owned the world. Insufficient money. Insufficient money all the time. And it wasn't Yolanda? No. On March 31st, 1995, Selena wanted to talk to Yolanda face-to-face about the money. She headed over to the Days Inn, where Yolanda was staying. So what happened? So Yolanda came into the picture, and what was going to happen? They... What was what, what was actually going to happen? Did you, did Selena go to the motel to fire Yolanda? Because that's what people think. Yeah, that's what that's what they think, you know. But there's a letter. Yolanda was the one that resigned because she was tired of uh, Mr. Quintanilla threatening Yolanda. Elida says Yolanda wrote a letter of resignation on March 13th, 18 days before their motel meeting. Because she was tired of Quintanilla threatening her, all this. And what was what would he say in his threats? That she he better get away from from Selena and stop putting her nose where it don't belong. But when the two women met without Abraham Quintanilla at that Corpus Christi motel, it would become the last thing one of them would ever do. That fatal encounter would end up in a trail of blood along the courtyard of the Days Inn, and one family is left mourning their sister. Next time on Selena, a star dies in Texas. Uh, the lady in 158 shot the lady over here. Okay, is the lady in 158 still there? Uh, I don't know. They shot somebody. She's taking off. Selena, a star dies in Texas is a Vault Studios production in collaboration with our network of TV stations in Texas. Special thanks to my colleague, Grace White, KHOU. The Vault Studios team includes executive producers Will Johnson and Adam Ostro and investigative journalist Jessica Knoll. Audio production by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Visit our website at vaultstudios.com to learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and The Officer's Wife. And you can find us on Facebook at Inside the Crime Vault if you'd like to talk about this case and learn about other stories we're covering. For Vault Studios and KIII-TV, I'm Rudy Trevino.